In barrels. It is Wednesday, January fifth. First episode of the pod for twenty twenty two. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we will answer a wide variety of mailbag questions that have come in in the last couple of weeks. So, lots of topics to get to. We have some valuation questions. We have a question about some guys that don't pop in the stuff plus model and why that might be the case. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some early draft strategy stuff, mostly looking at a few players in the early rounds that are either jumping up a little bit unexpectedly or a couple that are starting to fall a bit. Just some observations from uh, an FBC 50 that I'm in right now, looking at the overall ADP trends. Uh, you know, happy new year to you. Uh, how did the last couple of weeks treat you while we were off? It's weird. It's like I got to relearn everything. You know, you have all these, you know, uh, you have all these routines that you do. And then for two weeks, I just did nothing really. I mean, I ran a little, uh, went to the, went to San Diego, um, and, uh, went to the zoo in the safari park down there and nothing too out of the ordinary shout out to everybody who showed up to the meetup. Uh, it was, it was fairly raucous by the end. Uh, uh we had a good time discussing all things Padres and fantasy baseball. Um, and we had a good little crew there at Pure Project. In fact, uh, shout out to Pure Project. Hey, yeah, it's a it's a nice treat for those of uh, those of you watching on YouTube. Yeah, we got a, a nice uh, we got a nice couple of tables outside. Uh, and um, shout out to my father in law uh, who had to wake up in the middle of the night and let me in because I forgot <laughs> where the key was. <laughs> I had to hop the fence was stuck at a locked door that set off an alarm or anything uh no but <laughs> a couple days later uh he was installing uh, some new security cameras <laughs> he's like if if you know after a few beers can get to the door <laughs> safely this is not yeah. a safe perimeter yeah so uh i i, I i'm a security consultant that's good. That's good that you, uh, you offer that service. The weak points in the, in the defense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, uh, some things that have been on my mind, uh, obviously not redecorating. If you're watching on YouTube, the walls and crap behind me have remained pretty much unchanged. If you look very carefully, that's a printer over my shoulder, my, my hey. right shoulder, but it's in a reflection. So it's really confusing, especially with me looking into the camera and not knowing what side that really is. But right over here, we have four rolls of scotch tape. Yeah, we got an excess coming out of Christmas. So if you need scotch tape, I am your guy, you know, let me know if you need to borrow or take a couple of rolls. Uh, but actually, I had a friend who sent me a really nice picture to hang in the background. It's too nice to go in my background. It's going to end up in the living room. It's more of a housewarming gift for Steph and I for the move out here. Um, so while that was a great gesture and intended to fix the problem behind me, we are still awaiting something else you're for that space. You're looking for more of a, it looks like um, maybe a closet door uh, yeah. picture. Yeah, like closet door kind of picture. Like you dorm. just need to recreate some of your old background on the closet door, I think. I know. I gave I gave the actual folding fake doors away because there was no way to get those out here. 
And uh. the stuff that was on those shelves is in a box by my feet. So it's all here. I just have to figure out what I'm going to get, like a bookshelf or something, and I'll load that up. Eventually, it'll get there. So still not still getting used to it. I had some house shenanigans when I came home as well. The switch uh, that, that takes the internet uh, and gives it to the rest of our house uh, just stopped working. Uh, so I had to go get a new switch. And then in one of the rooms, uh, we have like a receiver that like, you know, takes the Apple TV and takes everything and and, and, and that just stopped working. So I, I feel like my house got hit by lightning or something. I was gone. It's very strange. We're only gone no, like six days, seven days. There was no lightning near us while you were gone. There's never lightning. Yeah, but like it's not it a did, thing here. It went like 30 degrees. It got cold, right? It did. I mean, it got cold for people not here. Cold for you. Yeah, I just kind of, <laughs> like, well, I guess I'll throw on a sweatshirt. Yeah. <laughs> I'll wear actual pants today instead of shorts. No, I've I've at least adapted. I don't wear shorts every day like I did for the first three months that I lived here. So you would fit in with a lot of Northern Californians. Slowly, slowly but surely, I am uh, beginning to make an impact around here. But uh, we've reached the point of the year, with it being the new year, where one or both of us is pretty much constantly on the clock now, from now until opening day, whenever the heck opening day ends up being. There's been a lot of interesting threads popping up. I think with fantasy football season ending, we're going to see even more people getting back into the fray, into the conversation. So that's nice to see. Obviously, the NFBC 50s, all the draft and hold stuff we've talked about, that's picking up as well. I'm in one right now. We're, we're doing one as an under-the-radar crew just to have some some fodder for that show. That comes back uh, next Tuesday, by the way. So if you listen to both shows, good news, that's coming back as well. The, Do you have a, a preference for like the order of the types of uh, of drafts that you're doing, especially on NFBC? Do you like to start with draft and hold to really uh, test your depth and not, and and get a full knowledge of the entire player field uh, before you start separating like who you actually want at the top for like a 15 team or whatever, like a, a non draft and hold? Yeah, because I feel in a lot of ways, I feel like draft and hold leagues and best ball leagues and the things that we can do now have replaced what mock drafts used to be like 10 years ago. And, yeah, might as well might you know, as well put some skin in the game if you're going to mock draft anyway. Right. And I, I just think the, the draft and hold element not having to make in-season pickups gives you <laughs> more license to just keep piling up drafts. Easier, It's easy to set lineups a couple times a week. It's time-consuming to add more and more fab to the equation at a certain point so i I, I think there's also another thing to it is that those those bottom guys that aren't being drafted that you won't draft in 15 team leagues at the beginning now they're at the bottom but you'll start to see some percolation right like you'll start to see some guys that you know people are like oh oh I i drafted him in like the 40th in my you know 50 round draft and hold and then you'll oh that's 35th oh now he's actually a good target for my bench in the 15 teamers and stuff you know like you start to like uh start to spot some players that you're like oh i wish i had picked that guy you know and then you have to take him the 35th the next time and then you have to take him the 30th and now he's he's a viable bench guy it, there's something kind of funny about when player prices change either from the previous season to the current one or over the course of draft season if you get in november december January and you draft again February March and that movement you just described occurs it's for some reason even if you really like that player and even if you didn't let's not say discover them but let's just say you were among the first people to start drafting them and kind of bring some of the attention toward them it's funny how you start to abandon them at a certain point on on price reasons and it, it it's even like 
more intense when you're talking about a player like Cedric Mullins is probably the best example of this from last year. The people that loved Cedric Mullins last year, it's just a late round, interesting flyer, are to me almost less likely to have him as a top 30 guy in 2022 because you got the discount. You you already you reaped mm. the benefits. You you found all of the value last year that he could possibly bring. And I think there's something psychologically difficult about paying full price when the price jumps that much for a player that you previously liked as much or more than anybody else. I feel you really on the pitching side. And I think that it's just because, um, you know, uh, people sort of think that, I don't know, pitching is such a, is such a crapshoot that, you know, I love Jose Arquiti, right? Like I would never pick him. There's like a certain point where I would never pick him. Because I just don't think I just don't think he has I don't think he's an ace, you know. Brandon Woodruff is like one of the one of the few guys that I picked late, middle, and top. You know? <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna follow this guy all the way to the top. Um, but he just he just showed more, I think, in terms of uh velo command and 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 strikeout rate, honestly. You kind of want to see that strikeout rate follow the guy. Um so yeah, I really feel it on pitching. You know, there'll be guys that I was in on last year. John Means is the guy that actually comes to mind. Where yeah. when he was free, I had tons of John Means. When he was a top forty pick, a uh, top forty starting pitcher, I was like, uh, he still has to pitch in Baltimore, right? Right. Most of the room for value profit was gone, so it just became a lot less appealing to, to jump in in that spot. To answer the original question, I, I do like the draft and holds, especially the 15-teamers. The 12s are good, too, though, just to figure out more paths to the different things that you're going to need, right? Like, the the exercise is making sure you're balanced across all the categories. Without in-season pickups, you can't really punt a category because these leagues all have overall prizes. Even in the case of the NFBC 50s, I think there's only three overall prizes. There's, like, a main event to the overall winner. Then there's like three online championship entries to second place and then one online championship entry for third place. But you still want to be in the running for that. So by not punting any categories, you give yourself at least a chance, even if you're drafting this early, of building a team that can get there. Uh, I think it's it's a great way to say, I yeah, didn't I don't get enough think speed you can early. Punt an you, you can, in, a stand, in a satellite league with no overall, then you can punt because it's, then it's the so same. All as, you're trying to do is win. Yeah, then it's the same as NL labor or whatever, any any standalone league that you play in, where it's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, strategy unfolded this way. I'm punting average or I'm punting saves or whatever it is. I, punting a category is a whole another conversation for probably another day. But mm -hmm. the thing I like the most about draft and hold leagues this time of year, aside from digging into the very depths of the player pool and finding some of the guys that are either going to be late rounders like fringe like 25 to 30 round picks later or even people we're going to pick up later i like trying to figure out where the weak spots are on the board positionally speaking what are the shapes of the positions what happens if i draft the front versus the back versus the middle what happens if i get saves early what happens if i don't get any saves early what happens if i'm speed light what happens if i'm power heavy mm -hmm. you can go through all those exercises and i realize you know every draft is different but i do think putting yourself in that position at least one time before you go into the drafts that count more helps you i think it makes yeah. you less likely to make a bad decision later when there are probably you know higher stakes yeah it ties into that sort of round 30 through 40 those players that's that's what you're you're finding out in the draft and holds and those deep picks you're finding out 
like where are there where where is their talent late and where could i you know can i just can i pass on outfielders can i just you know get two or three good outfielders and then cobble together outfielders late because there's a ton of outfielders in in the late rounds that i still like yeah that's that's what i'm talking about that's i think that you gain a lot of knowledge for the draft and holds early on the other thing i was going to ask you about just draft and holds in general do you have a a core strategy that changes without the benefit of in-season pickup. So an example of this might be uh, being more aggressive with starting pitching. Because if you feel like as a player, your strength in-season is streaming pitchers and picking up the two-start guys and and finding guys in-season who weren't drafted that stick on your roster, if you believe that's a skill you have, that, that skill is not as much available to you if you don't have in-season pickups. So then maybe you have to push pitching a little earlier. Or you know, is there anything else like that that you take into consideration when you're building a team for this format, because it's not exactly the same. Like there's some people that go even more aggressive with closers, right? You don't get the chance to chase saves with. I was going to go. I was, that's where I was going to go. I would, I, I am a little bit more aggressive with saves and drown and hold than I would be normally. And it's not, it's not starting pitching. Here's why for me, I get 13 shots at it, maybe 14 shots at starting pitchers. That's, that's where, that's the number I'm looking to get in a draft and hold for starting pitchers. And if you give me 13 shots at it, I feel like I'm hoping I can get six or seven or nine of which two are like streamers, you know, mm-hmm. two or three are streamers. That's all you need. You're, you're aiming to get, you know, you're aiming to get six good starting pitchers over the course of the season. You can give me 13 shots. I feel like, yeah, I can do this, you know, especially since I have my darling, you know, long shots, you know, where I, could, oh man, I love, I love picking starting pitchers the last three, four, you know, picks of the, of a draft and hold um, that, that I'm, I'm totally cool with leaving those out there. I'm always, I always have names where I'm like, that's fine. I still like this guy and this guy and this guy, you know, but, uh, but cl- uh, closers. Yeah. There are names. I like um, like Jake cousins. Here's a guy that that that, that pitching plus loves stuff plus loves. You know, uh, there's a path to to him getting saved. I mean, it's a tough one. Hater gets traded. Devin Williams gets hurt. That exists. There's that universe exists, right? I mean, that's it's totally it's plausible. Hater's getting to the near the end of his team control, and and the Brewers will do anything. And then Devin Williams is often injured, right? Uh, but you know, just taking Jake Cousins and like giving him a whole roster spot. Just, you don't want to do too much of that, you know, like, and there are tons of guys like that. Um, Taylor, Taylor Wells, is that his name? Tyler Wells. Walls, Tyler, 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 Tyler. Tyler Wells Walls. is the reliever and Taylor Tyler. Walls is the shortstop. <laughs> Taylor Wells is the guy I'm talking about. Uh, you know, there's guys, uh, there's a ton of guys that pop on my list uh, in terms of uh, pitching plus and pitching plus for relievers is, is better than projections. So it's like, ah, I love these guys. These are the I love all these, but you don't you don't want to have them on your roster like like because they're they're like five percent plays. You know what I mean? There's like a there's a real long shot, and the like yeah okay you can maybe paper over uh, some weeks where you're like I don't have a starting pitcher this week. I'm just gonna put in my you know really good middle reliever that I that I spotted, but that's that's not ideal. That's that's not necessarily uh, a league winning strategy. It's something that you do in the worst case. So I want two closers that I think are going to be closers all year. And then I'll take, I'll take about four to five shots. Uh, and those can be late. 
because I feel like, you know, I have a good, I have a good method, but I still want those two good closers and I want them to be two good closers, not, um, I don't know what's, what's going on in San Diego, Pomerantz or like, I don't, he's healthy. That's a shot. You know what I'm saying? Like, I yeah. think there's probably 10 or 12, uh, bullpen situations right now that are just shots in the dark. You're going to take a shot at them. That's fine. I, uh, we all have to do it, but that means that you have to get two out of the top 12. Yeah, it's kind of funny that in draft and hold right now, the things I'm thinking the most about early are saves and batting average. Like, mm -hmm. who am I? What have I become? Well, Steals I mean, are probably just, a close third. Very difficult. You know, saves and draft and holds is like I'm saying. Like, you only get five shots at it. You can you can't do that like hot pickup. There will be tons of saves that are not used in your draft and hold. Right. The threshold for winning the category is actually lower. Instead of having three roster spots worth of, of 30 save guys to win the category. You can win it at 70. 70 or 75 might be enough. Yeah. And I think that's where... So it was a Yancey Eaton tweet. Friend of the pod, Yancey, had a tweet back at the 29th of December. Here it is. Having done absolutely zero fantasy baseball research for the 2022 season, I'm going to go on a limb and predict that the overall champions of most of the big NFPC leagues will have gotten there by not drafting a relief pitcher in the first three rounds. Now, I think that gets at something different than, than draft and hold. I do think this is one of the key differences. I think some of the, the ADP we see now is unique to this format. So there's going to be some adjustments. I think you see Hayter and Liam Hendricks going in the first three rounds of a lot of drafts right now because if you can't make in-season moves and if you believe the quality of the hitters or the starting pitchers you're looking at in that range are pretty similar to the guys that are going to be there round or two or three rounds later you might as well lock in one of the handful of elite relievers with maximum job security so i think that that scarcity leaning into that scarcity i think it's actually a good idea where i think yancey's point is is more like when we get to the main event in march well you get in season moves there and i don't think you necessarily have to go get hater or hendrix in the third or even the fourth round to win there but you do have to be either good at finding those second tier guys or third tier guys that end up and are rising into consistent roles, or you have to be really good at playing fab. Play to your strengths, but I think all this comes back to one simple belief. There are so many ways to build a roster, so many ways to actually win. Uh, I just think you have to know, like, what is the cost of doing that? Can you do enough things right to offset the high opportunity cost of taking a hater or a Hendrix yeah. that early. Because the the FAB cost is not only the FAB dollars you're spending. Uh, what it means to me is uh, in order to be good at getting closers in FAB and NFPC, uh, you actually need to devote a bench spot to a reliever. It's very awkward. It's very strange. But what you need to do is buy the reliever for $2 two weeks before he becomes closer. And you need to hold him on your bench for a week or two. You know, And you need to know when that shot is gone and you need to replace that $2 reliever with another one. You know, <laughs> that's been how I've found success is not spending, uh, you know, hundreds of dollars on a newly minted closer that then loses the job the next week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's been spending, you know, two to $20 on a guy that's behind maybe a shaky closer that, you know, hasn't lost his job yet and then holding on to him for a couple of weeks. That's that's where I I found some success. So the, the, the equivalent of that in draft and hold, I don't really know what it is. I think it's to me, it's I don't really want to spend a third or fourth round pick on a closer. So what I end up doing is trying to get like Rice Iglesias and 
uh who's presley? another like yeah 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 i think we had presley and iglesias in our in our uh draft hole that we did recently but that's those are the two names like if i could double tap those even at eight nine or, or seven eight or something like i'd feel i'd feel better um uh and so i'd, I'd want i want two good ones that i think will actually close all year that you know have some good evidence behind them some backing um before I, I start taking shots. But I don't necessarily, in the top three rounds, I want to take a, an ace starting pitcher and two great bats. I think this also leads to a lot of questions to like what kinds of pitchers are falling a little bit that could be SP1s, you know, who, who are either emerging pitchers that can make that leap or guys that maybe pitch to that level but aren't being treated I've, that way. I found that uh, the bounce back SP1s uh, are really interesting in that regard. And I have a piece coming out tomorrow on that about Nola and Darvish and two more names that I won't name because we have a paywall, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, you should save that. <laughs> uh, seems like a good time to save. But we, you, you know, we did, we did that. No, we did that. We did a little talk. We did a little piece uh, in the off season, uh, you know, December 27th or so about, about uh, just taking Nola's old strand rate his career strand rate and replacing it and giving him a three, eight ERA basically uh, based on his career strand rate versus his, uh, his strand rate last year. So uh, Nola Darvish uh, sale are uh, guys I like uh, as secondary. I, I think going bat bat and getting uh, two of those three, uh, if that's possible for you in a draft, I think that's a, that's a winning strategy. Yeah, I, I'm comfortable building it out that way. I, I am comfortable taking Hader or Hendricks late in the third round of a 12-teamer, by the way. I just did it, actually, yesterday. Liam Hendricks at 311. And well, in a 12-teamer, there's a little bit more uh, pressure on getting top three to five talents in every in every every at every position, right? Yeah, because I also, in addition to getting Hendricks, two rounds later, I took Ryan Presley, so I feel great about saves. I grabbed Will Smith as the second catcher off the board in that league, which I don't normally yeah. take catchers that early either. Because the but, replacement value is so high. Yeah. So that was unusual. And then Charlie Morton is now my SP1 on that team. Mm. But I'm fine with that because I'm going to go aggressive in the next five rounds, probably getting three to four more starting pitchers behind Morton. And then everyone's going to say, well, what about your offense? Well, I have a Tucker, Betts, Tim Anderson, Will Smith, Jazz Chisholm, first five. Like, I have a first five of guys that mostly do everything. Will Smith's the only guy that doesn't really run out of that what, group. So I've got to write What's the result number. of your? Uh, this is interesting. I think this will be this will allow for a segue into our next topic. Uh, what was the result of your discussion of uh, Jazz uh, Chisholm versus uh, Kristen Yelich and um, Cody Bellinger on, on Twitter today? Did you get any interesting? Uh, uh feedback because i i've i've seen a lot of jazz he's cr he's climbing up uh in on draft boards and sometimes when i where i see him i say uh that seems a little high for me because what was this you know what was the second half uh batting average it's a problem i i think i took him at 86th overall and i think it was it was the only pick i've made so far in this slow draft where i i sort of had regrets quickly about it. Like, usually I don't have a lot of regrets about the way I build a team. I'm pretty confident in what I'm doing, even if I'm wrong. Like, I end up finding out I'm wrong later, but I still feel good about it in the moment. Lovely. Good feeling. The The Jazz Chisholm thing that would inspire the tweet was, like, how much more likely is it that this guy gets better with K-rate, with the ground ball rate maybe coming down 
you know, with the things that he needs to do to take that next step, is that more likely or just as likely as a Yelich bounce back? And I'm talking 80 to 90%. That was what I threw out there in the tweet, 80 to 90%. Is he going to be an MVP again? Probably not. Like it's hard, it's hard to get to the MVP level, but we're saying like 270, 25 to 30 homers, 10 steals, and a bunch of runs scored in RBIs, right? If Yelich does that where he's, he's going. He's going to be worth more than Jazz, I think. Right. He'd probably be a third rounder next year if he did that. Maybe even a little earlier because he's been, you know, an early first rounder before. Same kind of principles apply to Cody Bellinger. We said before, they're always joined together. I think we talked about in the rebounds episode, Bellinger pops a little bit more as a more likely to bounce back mm-hmm. bat, which which makes some sense. But I guess what I love about building teams is is these sorts of puzzles and it's a future projection built into it what are these things is the most likely and then beyond that can you find similarly likely things that are going to happen later like the things you need jazz chisholm to do are probably true of guys that are going to go later that didn't already get as much playing time as he did and that could also vault them up into top 50 overall status right I, i think with jazz I'm okay where I got him. I think there were much safer things I could have done and maybe safer things I should have done. I had a great batting average foundation. I think he kind of pushes back against that a little bit, uh, but I, I can I could absorb it. Like it, so it, it sort of made sense there. The speed's real. The power's still developing. There's enough there where I'm, I'm not angry about it, but if you said draft from that same spot, get the same foundation, how many times out of 10 are you taking Jazz Chisholm right there? Maybe it's five. Maybe it's even three, and maybe it's a mix of other guys. Maybe it's a mix of Bellinger and Yelich for the other third of those entries, and then it's a pitcher. Maybe it's just going with Jose Barrios or someone else in that spot to back up Morton in the other couple of turns. I just, there. I find it fascinating what you're talking about in terms of like what you're asking them to do. I think uh, the so let's say there's a risk that someone was found out, right? The, there's a risk that any player uh, that there was something that the league did in the second half or, you know, so for example, Cody Bellinger saw a lot more fastballs in the second half last year. Jeff Zimmerman had a tweet about this. So what you're asking him to do is two things. You're asking him to be healthy and to do something about maybe high fastballs or fastballs in general, right? Okay. So those two things Um, with jazz Chisholm, you're asking him to figure out the strikeout rate uh, and to figure out the power, right? Um, And in the second half last year, he did have the 228 average and the worst power but he did have a 24.6% strikeout rate, which is uh, one of the better. And he had some of the best months of his, uh, of his, even his minor league career in terms of strikeout rate. So you have all these indicators back and forth with, with Christian Yelich, you're looking for health and power, right? And, and if you, if you look at, at Christian's uh, rolling power rates, you kind of see this peak in his MVP season that he's just dropped off of since. So maybe that was just a peak. Right. So these risks are uh, are twofold for these players at this point. That's what makes it so difficult. You have the age uh, for jazz as a, as a positive factor. Uh, and then for the other two, uh, for Bellinger, it's it's still a, a medium to positive factor for for Christian. It's probably uh, getting closer to a negative factor. Right. And you're fact and you're asking them each to uh, other than jazz to get healthy, uh, to make some sort of adjustment. Um, and to, and to get back to, to old levels or in jazz's case, maybe a new level. Um, the, the uncertainty is a little bit larger for jazz because you don't have the track record, but the age 
is saying you're asking actually Jazz to do a little bit less than those other two guys. He is healthy already, right? Right. And you're not going to have a major surgery, right? You're, the age suggests uh, that he should get better next year, and you have some underlying data that that says that he could get better. So maybe Jazz is the pick there. Um, but it is interesting to think about what are the likelihoods, what are the percentage likelihoods around these things. Uh, I tend to think that injury is a good one to bet on because I think we put the, there's research out there for this, but I think we put the injury prone moniker on people too early. Um, I think that a full off season for Cody Ballinger, uh, where, where he didn't have the surgery, I think that could be, uh, everything he needs. He's young enough. Um, you know, I think maybe Cody Bellinger would be my pick there. Uh, but, uh, it is interesting to think that there's a range of outcomes for Jazz's strikeout rate, for his power, uh, for his health. And that's true for Cody and that's true for Christian. And so your personal taste is going to be some, uh, some sense of risk around those different things, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you had taken, uh, who's a, who's a, maybe if you took Tatis first, right? In a weird way, would that make you want to take Jazz later? Because you, Tatis is an injury risk and you don't want to take Bellinger and Yelich and have, you know, a bunch of injury risk in your first four picks? Yeah, maybe there's, there's some of that. I mean, I, I think when you look at the way good rosters are built, you have, not only the categorical balance, but I think you do have a balance in the types of profiles of the players. Risk, you, risk balance. You have some guys that could get a lot better. You have some proven veterans who are very likely to hit their projection. Like you have that that mix, and I like I had that. I, I felt like I had kind of a, a boring team to that point. Like Tucker Betts, Hendricks, Tim Anderson, underrated, does everything well. I think the key that makes mm-hmm. Tim Anderson underrated is that he's a machine in batting average and. Again, I, I'm really emphasizing that particular category. You know, Presley, Will Smith, Charlie Morton. That's that's an older kind of boring build. So maybe that was part of what led yeah. me to Jazz. It's kind um, of fun to fun to put Jazz in that mix. Bobby Witt Jr. went one pick before me, and I just, before in a non keeper. Yeah, non keeper. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, so but, then you you realize it's sort of like take your shot time. I mean, uh, to me, take your shot time is sort of eighth and ninth round, but. Yeah, this was the eighth round, so it was. Oh, early, okay, yeah, early right, there you go. So it's, yeah. it's appropriate. Let's take your shot time, but wit is. <laughs> well, that's a shot. I, I just think the way I'm seeing draft boards come together, I'm gonna have a couple of first rounders, like I often do, in mixed auctions, and then there's gonna be a bunch of dudes that have ADPs in like rounds two through five that aren't any of my rosters, and I'm gonna have a whole bunch of guys that go in round seven through nine on my auction teams. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be whatever stars I can get at a fair price, and then a bunch of early mid rounders that just stacked up on my roster behind. I that. mean, just a little auction strategy, like especially if they're deep, like NL only and AL only. I find that the dollars are bad values. Dollar dollar second catchers are nothing. Uh, dollar outfielders are just a, such a shot in the dark. Dollar pitchers are likely to be gone off your roster in the week two. You know. So what you're saying is have like, you know, two uh, $30 bats uh, and then a bunch of 10s and 15s. Yeah. Ideally, that's the that's the range I'm going to live in. Instead of going all the way up to like the 45 or 50 range for the top, top guys, probably not going to do that. Money to, to get more middle middle round guys. Yeah, I think I'm going to lean more. And in the, the deep the ones, the deep auction, one. yeah, the depth is really important. You're buying plate appearances and IP. That's why that's why the dollar outfielder sucks, and that's why the dollar pitcher sucks. 
because yeah. you're not getting your innings pitched. You're not getting your, your, your plate appearances. Looking at those responses to the, the Twitter version of the, the Jazz versus Bellinger versus Yelich, it seemed like it was split more between Jazz and Bellinger. A lot of concerns about Yelich's back. And that's still yeah. being a problem. I, I get it. And he's, uh, and he's got he's that older. age factor, right? At least, yeah. yeah. Bellinger and Jazz are young, right near their peaks. Yeah. So that that seemed to be the more sort of consistent feel there. Like no one, no one really seemed to want Yelich the most of that trio. But mm-hmm. they're pretty often, I think, going to end up close to each other, especially uh, in snake draft scenarios. I think the guy that I I really struggled with, and it was at the five, six turn where I first thought about him. If he'd been there at the seven, eight turn, I would have taken him is Joe Musgrove. He ended up going seven, three in this particular draft. So eight picks before my turn where I got Morton is Joe Musgrove that much better than he was during uh, compared to the end of his time in Pittsburgh. Did he take that much of a step forward? Great. First half had the no hitter second half faded a little bit. You know, the velos up. He's got the cutter. Didn't have that working as much as he's through it. He's through it last year. So there were changes. I just, I'm having a difficult time looking at Joe Musgrove and seeing the, you know, the weight on an ace option that some people might see him. And I know the forecaster box on him loves him, love what they do at baseball HQ. And that was kind of bouncing around in my head too, but I just, I couldn't bring myself to either push him up a little or even pay full price. And I'm wondering if I'm missing something with Joe Musgrove. No, I'm in love with him. I I I don't know. Uh, maybe a twelfth, uh, twelve team. No, no, not a. I, uh, maybe a fifth. Uh, I don't. I don't want him as my number one. Okay. Um, but it, but if I do, if it was like a Musgrove Darvish double Padres double tap or something, Musgrove Sale or something, I would I would consider him a back end top uh, ace, and I would have to have some sort of mitigation strategy. Just because there is the risk that he drops down to like a 92 and a half type velo, and that somehow is really important to him. Um, but I do see a, a real change in swing strike rate, pitch mix, um, a little bit of pitch shape, uh, and outcomes uh, in his last two seasons that I believe in. And the projections are really good. Projections are really good. The projections would have told me to take him ahead of Morton if they were both there. And I think they had him easily as the best starting pitcher on the board at the time, based on Steamer, if I remember the dollar values correctly. So it's it's interesting that he's... Given their age and the fact that, that, much. that Morton's coming off that injury, which I don't think will affect him. I mean, he threw 95 when it was still broken, so <laughs> I think he'll be fine. Uh, but I would have taken Musgrove over Morton, I think. Yeah, I didn't, didn't end up getting the choice to do it. I mean, I would have taken him around earlier, so just something I have to file away for the future and all right, you see enough there to justify the the increased price on him. Uh, there was a hitter that went really early in this draft. Not that he doesn't deserve to be considered where he's going, but I've seen the early picks span into the first round. It's Luis Robert. He is uh, you know, 13th overall in this one. He's only a 12-teamer. I think he's gone as high as ninth in a draft in the last couple of weeks over at the NFBC. I get it. Like There's power, there's speed, there's tantalizing ceiling, and I guess this kind of comes back to how much risk are you willing to take early? And then a question of, well, how much risk is there really given what he showed us over the course of, of last season? It was a pretty big step forward for him. Obviously, it's a lineup that we like, and everybody's expecting you know a full complement of games this time around. He plays 140-plus games and even comes close to his projection. 
The steamer projection has him at a 285, 339, 507 line, 30 homers, and 14 steals. I mean, that is absolutely the kind of player that you'd think about as a late first rounder. Are you in on Luis Robert at that increased price? It's um, uh, it's it's really interesting. The strikeout rate, I thought he would have the sort of 30% strikeout rate he showed in his rookie season. And then last year, his strikeout rate was 20.6, but in 300 plate appearances. And it seems to have had a, an outside effect, outsized effect on the steamer projection, probably because strikeout rate is one of those things that supposedly stabilizes uh, quickly. And so steamer's projecting him for a 22% strikeout rate, but he still has this really large swing strike rate. And when I look at his uh, what he did to, to change, he didn't change the fact that he reaches at everything. He is a free swinging dude. In fact, he sw swung more often last year. And uh, what he did was he swung more often at fastballs and sliders early in the count. So he became more aggressive in order to basically, and this is something I wrote about on Fangrass uh, a while ago with Josh Hamilton. Uh, you know, swing rate is not something that you just, that there should be one swing rate for everyone. If you have bad plate skills or like a bad contact ability basically you should swing early you should swing often you should swing so that you make contact before you get to a two strike count and strike out hmm. that was something that hamilton figured out but it doesn't long term it's still a bad strategy because your contact ability like especially on the switches outside the zone is just going to drop Right. So uh, he did the right thing, I think, in being aggressive early that you hear people hunting fastball, hunt hard, right? Hunt hard early, you know, look for something good early as the pitchers are trying to establish. The one thing that I didn't see is that pitchers did not change their strategy against him. So they were still throwing fastballs and breaking balls early in counts uh, at the same rate as the league average. And so I wonder if next year he's just going to see a ton more breaking balls early in counts. It's interesting and, because if you look at the swing percentage leaderboard, that just I set it down a little bit. I set it down to 200 plate appearances just to make yeah, sure yeah, that you it's get in there. In. Hanser Alberto, number one. Contact William, Meister. Williams Astadio, number two. Contact Meister. Robert, number three. Yeah, not a contact Meister. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of the top 10 is full of interesting, actually top 20 even. Josh Fuentes out in Colorado. Uh -huh. Jorge Alfaro, who um, does, does not have plate yeah. discipline. Well, and, and I think that's the problematic comp for Luis. But there's good comps here too. Sal mm -hmm. Perez coming off the best season of his career. Mm -hmm. uh, Avi Garcia coming off the best season of his career. Tim but Anderson. Sal Perez makes more contact. What about like Tim Garcia Anderson and Bo Bichette here as two guys that are in range? Because mm -hmm. like, those are totally like Bo Bichette is also a good bad ball hitter. I think we're yeah. learning like he could just hit anything to any part of the park and hit it pretty hard. So like I, I don't I take I one thing I was just say is I think I'll take all three of those guys uh, from ages 24 to 27, 28. And I don't I don't want them after that. Let's 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 have some fun here. Hold on, Pablo Sandoval. Oh, we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this. Reach, swing, extraordinaire. He is he's thirty five now. Uh, so his career really fell off 
How is uh, Pablo Sandoval younger I, than me? Twenty, yeah, right. What's going on? No, in fact, uh, it actually fell off uh, at twenty-eight. Uh, yeah, twenty-eight. So his 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 career fell off after he turned twenty-eight. Uh, Josh Hamilton, other swingmeister extraordinaire. He had that whole thing though. Well, Ham- uh, Hamilton's aging curve doesn't count. Like it's it's just it's no, a total outlier. On. Weird. Like you can't you can't. No, look it at- is. It's he's a free swinger that lost it. Oh, you can use him as a comp, but I'm just saying, like the the shape of Josh Hamilton's career doesn't. I know, the, but that's anything. just. I think he just lost early stuff. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not talking about the accumulation. I'm just saying when did he drop off? It was age 31. So. Um. Anyway, I think Hamilton is an interesting cop. I mean, uh, you know, he had a really high swing strike rates. Uh, he had really high swing rates. Uh, and he had really high reach rates. And he was a, a super athletic center field type early on. And he didn't age well. I think Hamilton is the cop here for Luis. Uh, so I'm cool. I, I'm cool with those guys uh, in the middle of their career. There is some risk of being sort of found out by something a little bit quicker than other people, I think, uh, by some sort of strategy on the pitcher's part, right? Like what if everybody just started just, you know, first and second pitch, everything was breaking balls. Fair. Uh, maybe, maybe, that'll, maybe that'll be, uh, maybe that'll be a tough obstacle for him to overcome. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, it's more of a dynasty and keeper league uh, concern because the tools are uh, just, as they say, dripping. I mean, it's fun to watch him play and he just hits the ball hard, runs hard. Like he does everything super hard swings hard. Yeah. So I'm wondering if, if the way to look at this is for, for guys that make consistently like hard, hard contact, if an elevated swing rate is much less problematic for them, like from a, or I mean, maybe at the, standpoint. either you make really hard contact or you make tons of contact. Yeah. The, right? One of those, buckets either Hans or Alberto or your Luis Robert. Be one of those guys. Don't be in the middle. Don't be, uh, don't be Josh Fuentes. <laughs> don't be Josh right. Fuentes. Yeah. That, I mean, does he, Garcia I mean, for I, years have been in the middle of this, though. No, I don't think you're underrating Fuentes. I mean, Garcia no, to me is like Garcia the, hits the ball wicked hard, dude. He's in the top twenty percent of bail rate. Always hit it hard. It's it's like he's in the middle results wise. Like it's like why? Oh, oh. But I'm just saying Fuentes is in the middle in terms of his strikeout rate is middling and uh, his barrel rate is uh, not a barrel rate. It's like uh, I can't. I am squinting to see it. So yeah, there's there's definitely different reasons why you should be an aggressive swinger, and I think it's clearly reflected in the top of that leaderboard. Yeah. So if I if I were Fuentes, I think I would. If I was coaching Fuentes, I think I would coach him to uh, wait for his pitch, swing hard. It maybe that's in there. I would want to know what his bat speed metrics were, right? Uh, independent of his barrel metrics. If he if he is a hard swinger, then I would tell him to be more patient than he is. If he's not, then I'm not sure how to coach contact myself. 
but I'm sure there are ways to. We could try. <laughs> Ted Lowry had a pretty good uh, thing where he 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 sets up the tee at nine different points of contact and makes sure you know in order to practice making contact at nine at the nine sort of at the zone right. So he basically in in a in a way has like nine different swings. Yeah, so get like to up, each up and in, down and in. Yeah, yeah, in middle. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And that's that's about the only tee work I've ever heard of that I was like, oh, okay, I'm into that. <laughs> that seems logical. I love these. Like you know, some of these things are just so crazy. Uh, you know, have someone like two to three feet in front of you and off to the side flip a ball at you. I don't really know what that is supposed to do, other than get you to repeat the mechanics of your swing. It's not going to help you hit actual pitching, but it could make your swing more consistent. Yeah, maybe it's just about repetition. Yeah, um, just just getting your body to do the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, because a flipper can can flip probably quicker than uh, a machine can throw or anything, right? Or even someone could probably a flip could maybe flip you balls quicker than you could put on the tee. Because you have to put stop, put pick the ball up, put it on a tee. You have to have someone just sort of flip, 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 flip. I still think getting those swings against something that is closer to the velo you have to hit the game <laughs> yeah. would be a better use of your time. But as you pointed out, neither you nor I are hitting coaches. So one know. of my favorite uh, ones, one of my favorite drills that I heard from from Donnie Ecker. I love this one. Uh, turn the machine up to ninety five for sliders and then ask the hitter to swing at 30 <laughs> percent i was looking at him i was like are you insane does anybody make any contact he's like yeah 10 percent of the time 10 15 of the time i was like that sounds awful and he's like well that's the point i mean the point is to fail <laughs> interesting approach there too I mean, yeah, some good it's results, man. Yeah, yeah I got, <laughs> not, not not a thing that initially would have been like, yeah, let's try that. And like, huh, that does work. Interesting. <laughs> well, okay, so with Robert, like I, I had mean, him, I, I had him outside my top twenty among hitters. So when you throw in pitchers, that probably puts him in the late part of round two of a fifteen teamer, maybe mm. the middle part of round two if you push him up a little bit. I had him behind Mullins. I had him behind Freeman and Machado. I had him behind Ozzy Albies, I had him behind Rafael Devers, I had him behind Starling Marte, and I had him behind Whit Merrifield. Now, I know compared to Marte and Merrifield, mm. there's more raw power there. So there's there's an easy path to argue, okay, well, if we really believe the speed's going to be there, then he should be ahead of those guys. I think Devers is a much better hitter. I think I trust the floor with Ozzy Albies a lot more. Obviously, Machado and Freeman have crazy long track records of being early rounders. So different types of players altogether. I think the the player that I'm most wrong about compared to the market here is Cedric Mullins. Like it's almost like ADP has Mullins and Robert flipped compared to where I have them. And I'm trying to figure out if that's me being wrong or the masses being wrong. I suppose it's, you know, you could, so you're making sort of a steals based argument. Yeah. I, I think the, the premium speed guys carry a little more value. And then I think the guys that we expect to run a little more consistently, they also carry 
more value. I don't think it's absurd that he's going in the first round, by the way. This isn't me saying I think he sucks mm-hmm. and you shouldn't draft him. It's more of just like, whoa, people are taking him there. I didn't have quite that high of a valuation on him. Me, me saying a guy should go mid mid two, late two, and everyone else going, nah, he's more of a one-two turn guy. We're not that far apart. But I I kind of want to make sure that I'm not missing out on a guy that could be... Like, if you're taking him at the one-two turn, you believe that he could be a possible top five overall guy. You have to think that's a possibility if you're taking him. Mm. Is that within the range of outcomes? Yes. It's pretty exciting. I I will take uh, Luis over or Mullins. I would do so because we haven't seen a full season of stolen bases. And the projections, I think, could be light on stolen bases. He had six in 296, and he had a major injury. Uh, what is that right? Yeah. Yeah, he was six, hurt. Six stolen bases. No, the number is right. Six stolen bases. Well, the number, yeah, yeah. So that was a major hip injury. You probably wouldn't be stealing a ton. I think there's a 30-30 season possibility out of him. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so you, uh, you see early first round ceiling. Like that's fine. Like yeah. I but and then also the projection is that he's you know just using the auction calculator fan graphs with the 15 team uh, and the steamer projection that makes him the 14th best bat right behind. Uh, Harper bets trout and uh, ahead of uh, another name. We'll talk about in a second, maybe. Uh, but uh, I absolutely belong. believe he belongs there, even with my reservations for picking somebody with that kind of approach. Um, but those reservations don't count for me as much when they're young and uh, in the middle of their careers, uh, the beginning of their primes. And I do think there's a possibility that the projections are light on the stolen bases. And I have one last thing to say, which is that uh, Vlad Sedler had an interesting tweet about the averages of his uh, hitters. His first, uh, I think it was first 10 to 13 hitters, basically his starting lineup. Um, and the average of his projections, uh, they were for a 270 batting average. Uh, runs an RBI. I, I don't know, man. Sure. <laughs> well, I don't even, I don't really think, maybe it's a failing of mine, but I don't really think about runs an RBI that much. Um, nine stolen bases, nine stolen bases per slot. Yes. So if you're yeah, taking, right. if you're taking, uh, Soto, or how about this? Uh, Jordan Alvarez is projected to be two after, uh, Luis Rivera. Mm-hmm. If you take Jordan Alvarez, you are, you are getting behind in the steals race. Right. Yep. So even though Jordan Alvarez's projection auction value projection is for like twenty five dollars, and Cedric Mullins is for twenty three, I could really see taking Mullins over Alvarez just because I don't want to fall behind in steals, especially not with my first pick. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. So you're saying ten per spot for the first? You said thirteen hitters? Yeah. So if, if you take Luis, you're not falling behind in steals at no. the very least. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're not going to get nine there. steals. As long as he's healthy, I guess is a question mark. But I don't, I don't think that's it. I think he's that was more just like a freak injury. So anyway, uh, you're going to get your nine steals. You're not going to fall behind. So no matter what, you don't fall behind in steals. And uh, there is, I think, an opportunity for a 30, 20, 30, 25 type season. You know, it's pretty easy if you just think about your first 13 hitters and you expect 10 steals and you draft guys that get you like zero or two, just like tally as you go. Like, oh, okay, I need 10 from this guy. Well, I only got zero. Add 10. 
I got that 20 means I somebody. A 20 or 30. Yeah. Right. I got, I got 10 for the next guy. That's why I like to pick for 20. That's why I love to pick. Yeah. I want to pick as long as possible guys that have eight to 12 stolen bases. I just want to, I don't want any zeros. I want to keep, I want to keep that kind of, I want to keep that accruing because then I won't have to take two, you know, zero power guys at the end or something. You know, I won't have to take a bunch of shots at steals and, you know, I don't, I know that there's a lot of discourse around Malstraw, but like, and I think maybe he'll be good enough uh, to be, to be fine. And if he is good enough to keep his job all year, he will definitely be worth a lot in fantasy, but I want to avoid taking Malstraw type players because I don't think they keep their jobs that often. No, uh, fully agree with you. Could do it. If he does, then he's like a $30 player, but the chances right. of him not keeping it are pretty high and they're way higher than like mullins does not count like that you know right he has enough power he has enough defense he's he's not gonna lose his job was the other player you want to talk about was it rafael devers it was yeah because he's he's another one of those guys that I, I i read the forecaster box and was like yep i'm on board he mashes he's an elite run producer middle of the order third base does fall off quite a bit uh, something that Ian was talking to me about just the other day. He's like, yeah, it gets pretty ugly. 12's not so much as 15's, but it's sort of a priority position in the early rounds for a lot of people to make sure that you've got someone that you really like as a clear, everyday, great skills guy. Devers, I think, could be first round value-wise and consistently falling in the early part of two, middle part of two, which, you know, if you're the if you're in a position where you end up taking a pitcher in round one, endeavors ends up being your first hitter other than being a little light on speed with your first bat that's fine he gets you a handful he probably gets you a half dozen bags so use the trick we just said like try to get 15 from the next one and then just you know eventually it'll all level out i mean i think because he can be elite and average in homers and in runs and rbis it's okay that he's not going to do a whole lot in stolen bases because those other skills are so strong across the board yeah, and I doubt he's going to be a full zero, you know? Uh, if you get that five, you're only minus five, right? In your little, in your note-taking device, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think he's going to be a, a minus a minus 10 uh, that you got to mark, mark down. So, um, and then he has a lot of the same problems as Luis Robert does, but they're not as, they're not as great. They're not as, um, they're not as, uh, out there and i mean his swing strike rate is is lower his strikeout rate is lower his reach rate is lower he's had improvement uh in the years uh, uh, for his uh his reach rate and there is a, a situation where you know at 26 next year he could have a peak season peak season from him uh might look a lot like 2018 2019 when he had 311 batting average 32 homers and eight stolen bases and all the runs in rbi you could ever ask for the the only asterisk is you know that hand injury that really hurt him in the playoffs, um, but that doesn't yeah, that doesn't seem like as big a deal. It was merely elbow inflammation and will not require surgery. Chris Cotillo of the Springfield Republican reports. I mean, basically three consecutive years of full volume playing time. Just turned twenty five in October. Not really a batting average liability at all legit power good lineup around him i mean look at the runs and rbis both in in 19 and 21 when you get mm-hmm. the full seasons they 
that pops. Like triple digits in both of those categories is really nice to have. So and he's one of those guys. He's almost like a, a third base version of, of Freddie Freeman, maybe a little bit of a, a dip in average mm-hmm. compared to what you expect from Freeman. But that profile, that player, sometimes struggles to crack the first round, even though they can be perennial returners of first round value. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the emphasis on stolen bases. Uh, third base is not a thought of as, as being a positional value. Um, but there's also, I think, growth potential here with him, uh, just in terms of that plate discipline, uh, those plate discipline stats. Uh, last year was his best walk year, a walk, walk rate year. And I, you know, I think there could actually be maybe a slightly higher level where he reaches even a little bit less. And that, those are those are skills that you learn over time, and they peak around uh, where he is. And this is going into his peak season, so um, I would—he's the kind of guy that I would just uh, be super giddy about to get in the second round. And in fact, he's the kind of guy that I would take in the second round uh, and push my and and hope that there was a starting pitcher who comes back to me in the third. You know what I mean? Okay, so if you had a hitter, Devers was still there early mid round two. You'd be more inclined to take Devers and wait another turn to get that like a Betts Devers. Uh, even if I had to go bets Devers, uh, and this is totally plausible, uh, what, what's out there. If I had to go bets Devers, Darvish Sale, my power is running out. But if I had to go bets <laughs> Devers, uh, Darvish Sale, like I'm into that man. That's a fun beginning, and I don't. I think between bets and Devers, I'm not. I'm not behind in stolen bases. I'm. I'm at pace. We had a few mailbag questions that came in, so I feel like we should go ahead and, and take care of those because uh, I, I'll admit this. I, I nuked the inbox at the end of the year. Uh, I realized I was never... Well, that's a good catch- way to get to zero. Yeah, I just couldn't, I couldn't catch <laughs> up. I tried. Listen, uh, if, you, if you sent us an email in the last six months and I didn't respond and we didn't talk about it on the show... You gotta try again. <laughs> I would say there's a 99% chance that it was read. And it was considered, and it was. It might have been a rundown. rundown for months, <laughs> yeah. and then it just fell, and then it just look. It, it got it got too messy. Eventually, the room gets too messy. You get the garbage bag. Everything goes in the garbage <laughs> bag, and you got to start over. <laughs> That's what happens. So, my apologies. And if you asked a question and it wasn't answered, and you'd still like it answered, please send it again. It is not a nuisance or a bother at all. I have regained control of the inbox. I cheated to get to inbox zero, but I got there. (laughs) Damn it. I said I was going to get there and I made it. So (laughs) first question of the new year comes from loyal listener OJ. And it's a stuff plus question that you have partially discussed in the past. OJ writes, I know stuff plus likes Aaron Ashby less than a bunch of us do. So Eno has been less favorable, but last time you discussed him, some other numbers seem surprisingly good, even to Eno. Uh, he thinks it might have been pitching plus in particular. I wondered if there is a certain kind of pitcher who generally shows up poorly in stuff plus, but then succeeds anyway. It seems like a Jamie Moyer type or a knuckleballer might also be elusive. Quick note from me, I'm pretty sure anything, any model that exists, knuckleballers don't count if there is one but just just <laughs> the, the only rule with knuckleballers is that there are no rules that apply to knuckleballers i uh, look to see if there's another guy who shows up poorly found ian anderson you know explained recently that might be a function of release point does ashby have some similarly flukish feature that skews his numbers is his release point as well does such a factor show up across multiple pitchers i really like the tool and just want to understand the numbers that thwart confirmation bias 
Um, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, Aaron Ashby uh, does better by pitching plus. Uh, and the reason that I, okay. Sorry. The reason why I care about stuff plus more, a little bit more than pitching plus is that pitching that stuff plus is uh, more um, sticky year to year. So uh, you could have someone uh, pop in a given year because they commanded all their pitches. Well, uh, maybe a Cole Irvin type or something, right? Where he popped in a given year, but he doesn't actually have command that good because command is not a sticky year to year. Next year's command is not as good. None of this stuff is there. And so he's uh, not as good. Um, uh, stuff stays, stays with you to year. Uh, somebody like you Darvish, um, you know, we'll still have the same stuff as he had last year, probably. And so you can bet on him to continue to have that same stuff. And maybe his location will be better next year. Right. Uh, Ashby has a 93 stuff plus uh, a 99 location plus and a 104 look uh, pitching plus, which doesn't make any sense at first. Right. How could he have below average stuff and below average location and above average pitching? Here's the thing. <clears throat> Stuff plus, location plus, and pitching plus are three different models. Totally different models. Pitching plus is not taking stuff plus and location plus and creating another number. So basically, Andy Ashby's, like his arsenal, fits better than the parts. Does that make sense? Yeah, the, the overall collection of what he does works better than the individual pitches in isolation based on how the models calculate them and in and to do this and not in the parlance of my model uh but to do this in the parlance of uh, of old school or scouts or whatever andy ashby has an out pitch it's the changeup, 113 stuff andy ashby has a command pitch that's not his fastball it's the slider he has a 103 location plus on the slider and he has good he has good location on the sinker so what he is is a sinker slider changeup guy, uh, and he can use the changeup for whiffs, which he does. Uh, he can use the slider for whiffs by using it in good locations, and then he can also use the slider for strikes, and he can use the sinker for strikes, and he can sinker for ground balls. So it all fits together pretty well. I, I do have a little bit more. Um, I might be a little bit more wary of Andy than of Ashby than other people. Uh, just because, you know, one above average pitch by stuff plus tells me he really only has one out pitch. And even if you count the slider as an out pitch because of the great location uh, on the sinker, he has 77 stuff plus 97 location plus. Um, it seems like a, a bad fastball guy. So, uh, in there should be an answer somewhere. <laughs> well, I wonder if that type of profile ends up being more floor than ceiling. And I feel like saying that then dismisses the idea that he could get better, which I'm not trying to do. I just wonder what that actually, like, what that means for a range of outcomes. Just because as, as described, it's almost like another way, the other way scouts would say that is, he just knows how to pitch. Well, it's like, well, yeah, mm -hmm. the stuff all works together. Like knowing knowing how to pitch to me would be like having stuff that plays off each other really well, 
changing location, you know, just working correctly, surprising opposing hitters, right? Just having that that few things you need to be successful without being the guy that when you you watch him, you're like, holy crap, this guy's untouchable. And does does that necessarily mean that ceiling is lower or is it just another approach? Is it, I don't have yeah. A-plus stuff across the board, but I have a great game plan and the stuff I do have works perfectly in concert. And, and maybe that's just as good as having A-plus stuff across the board, but a terrible mind for pitching or bad game planning or bad sequencing or mm-hmm. uh, not having maybe not having even average command, right? So it's close to average command. So maybe you have a plus stuff, but you have below average command and that puts you in that reliever bubble, depending on the number of mm-hmm. pitches that you have. So maybe he avoids, maybe he avoids the reliever section with this profile and is kind of a successful, number three starter with strikeouts. Maybe that's what this profile means. Never going to be the guy that we're talking about as an SP1, but consistently exceeds expectations. Kind of does, maybe does fit into the Ian Anderson group. I don't know if Ian Anderson's ever going to be an SP1, but he's still good. Clearly still does a lot of things well. Maybe that's the kind of pitcher Ashby ends up being too. Yeah, for Ian Anderson, um, I I think there's some things that the change that we're missing on the changeup that we that uh, advancements in uh, data and tech will be able to catch in the future. So, I did mention his release point, but um, there might be something to uh, the angle of his arm, which can be measurable now with Hawkeye, uh, and the speed of his arm uh, that we're missing. Um, and there was a good piece by Justin Choi over at Fangraphs about the vertical angle of his pitches that comes in. Uh, vertical angle by itself is not a, a, a metric that that is in uh, Stuff Plus. So uh, there, there are going to be advances in Stuff Plus as we add this new data in about uh, the shape of the pitcher's arms, and maybe maybe there's more to do with the shape of the pitches. So that could not be captured. What you talk about having an arsenal that plays off itself, theoretically, the model should capture that because what you've got are uh, the, the way that we do stuff plus and pitching plus, all, the pitches are defined off each other, right? So we are doing these things in um, their own little sort of stratosphere. And that should theoretically catch it, but that does not catch some of the other stuff you talk about in terms of game planning. Um, you know, there are uh, possibly spin interactions between pitches. That's not necessarily something that we. Uh, have uh, as a variable in there. Um, so there there may be something we're missing there in terms of spin interactions between the two pitches. Um, and then uh, lastly, um, you know, you could just look at his his baseline stats uh, for for Ashby and 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 poke some holes in his uh, candidacy for ace like behavior. Um, lots of walk rates over four. Um, you know, when he, when he got to high a, his, his strikeout rate, uh, plummeted, uh, for 65 innings in high a, uh, he's got the full missing season where he went from high a to triple a, <laughs> um, you know, his ERAs were not outstanding, even though his strikeout rates were, um, so, you know, there's, I, I think he's a very interesting player, but he, it's not a great park. He doesn't necessarily have a role to begin with. Um, and his ground ball rates were all over the place. So it's kind of hard to tell. Is he going to be, you know, like a 60% ground ball guy uh, with 10 strikeouts per nine? Then that's his path towards ace them. Um, but if his sinker really does have 70 or 80 stuff plus, then I kind of doubt that 
that's going to continue for him. Um, but uh, the last thing that um, there were some other names. What were the other names that he brought up in terms of um, guys that Stuff Plus was low on? Or yeah, similar players who seemed low: Pablo Lopez, Patrick Sandoval, Ranger Suarez, Justin Steele, and Oscar Enoa. So let me take Enoa out of there. Um, and one thing that I do see that's in common between those guys is just number of pitches. Um, a lot of those guys have three or four sort of either representative pitches, pitches they throw a lot, pitches that that was the one thing that you said, surprise the batter. You you can sequence interestingly if you have four or five pitches, right? We've talked about the Hunjin Ryu kind of approach. Um, number of pitches is just a really hard thing. We haven't been able to put it in the model successfully in a way that improves the model. Uh, we can't just put it, it. We've tried putting number of pitches in as a variable, right? Um, and it, it didn't improve the model. Um, but there is something there with the things you were talking about, uh, knowing how to pitch, pitchability, sequencing, uh, surprising the batter. Number of pitches has to matter. Um, but uh, most often you get somebody um, popping in stuff plus like, like Waskari Noah, actually. Um, my fit, one of my favorite sleepers for next year is Luis Gil on the Yankees. Um, he pops because he throws two pitches. He throws a fastball on slider and they have amazing stuff. And he kind of did it. Some of it in relief. He could, he could really fall off as a starter. Uh, if he's still only throwing two pitches and the stuff plus drops cause he's a starter and he's trying to go further. Um, and he doesn't seem to have that wide arsenal that some of like Patrick Sandoval has. Right. I mean, the the gap between Patrick Sandoval and Luis Heel is uh, they're 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 opposites. I think there's Heel... risk in both though. Sandoval could not have the stuff next year to be that good. He could have four meh pitches. He could be a Cole Irvin, you know. And then Luis Heel, the risk is he's a reliever. Yeah, but I think the difference is like Sandoval has an ADP of like pick two hundred. Heel doesn't go in the top four hundred. And when you see. When you see guys like that, like I'll take Luis Heels flaws at that price each right. and every day because you can afford to be wrong at that mm -hmm. point. Okay, well, even in drafting the hold, if he ends up being a reliever, there might be a handful of weeks where you throw him in as a reliever, or if he's their sixth or seventh starter, when the opportunity opens up, then he's good enough to be in your lineup those weeks. I mean, I, I just think your margin for error at that stage of the draft is is pretty great, but where Sandoval goes you're passing up on some players that could be a lot better if you miss in that spot. Yeah. Sandoval is an interesting one. I've got him in devil's rejects with James Anderson. And we disagree. <laughs> uh, I put him on the block. Uh, <laughs> if anybody from devil's rejects is asking uh, if you made an interesting offer for Sandoval, you could uh, inspire some arguments between me and James. If you wanted to put a wedge between us, uh, but yeah, Sandoval 97 stuff plus, 97 uh, location plus 97 pitching plus seems like a averageish starting pitcher. Do you like Pablo Lopez? So I'm a little surprised that he'd come up as lower than expected in the stuff plus model. Let's see what I've got here. 99 uh, stuff plus 105 location plus 102 uh, pitching plus. Surprising to to think that he might be more of a command based pitcher. I agree. Um, 
there's there was some fluctuation in Pablo Lopez's stuff last year and in his career. Uh, there's been some velocity up and downs. There's been some uh, finicking, f f f finicking, finicking, finicky. He's, he's he's tweaking. He's 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 playing with the breaking ball. Oh yeah, he's tweak. Yeah, he's yes, he's tweaking things. He's a changeup first guy uh, who has a great changeup, and I think the breaking balls. I think the breaking balls could could slot into place, and he's a guy that could change some of his pitch mix to change his stuff. Plus, generally, I'm 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 positive about Pablo Lopez. I like him. I don't think the model's that negative on him either. A 102 uh, pitching plus guy in uh, in Miami is now. If he goes somewhere else, that might change might change a little bit. Just a random toss up before we go. We'll save the rest of the questions for a future episode. Good way to start off the new year. Keep piling up those questions to uh, get back to a cluttered inbox. No, we'll we'll make sure we get to them. But Shane Boz is right there next to Pablo Lopez and. Yeah, my crap the model couldn't love him more <laughs> i know and i and I'm, like just look even if you just watch those guys if you like which one of those guys you want to draft at the price is equal your your, your your brain and your heart are just gonna say well draft shane boz he could be so good the only I just, question i guess is the innings huh i guess but i i think the the injuries and stuff that lopez has had i don't feel like mm -hmm. that's a runaway for lopez necessarily and what what did what did Shane Boz put together? He had a pretty full season last year. Yeah, when you add up everything from all the levels, the workload was good. Let's see here, uh, seventy eight, uh, eighty one. But then he had some postseason. A little bit of postseason. Uh, didn't he also pitch? Didn't he also pitch uh, for Team USA too? Oh, oh, Baz. Uh, Team USA stats are those available? I'm at 83. I'm at 83, uh, and then 2.2. 2. That wow. is, is, that, is that all you threw? <laughs> I guess so. Uh, anyway, uh, 85. 85 is not a bad place to start. I think you can get to 120. I mean, 100. Yeah, 120. I could say they could push him to 120, 125. And then what's our innings projection for Lopez? Probably like 150 at least. Yeah. So that's the difference. Damn it. It's a difference. <sighs> Although he's never uh, had 150 in a big league he's, season. He's, yeah. He, uh, am I missing some minor league stats here? Because 2019, 120 innings, 125. Yeah, you, you got 145 back in 2017. Oh, and all the minors. Yeah, but split that's between a long time ago, and that's minor leagues. So 120 is his tops. In 2019, 125 is his tops. Wait, no, now I'm back to past. <laughs> My innings prediction for both of them might be like 125. It's funny. I mean, the depth charts will spit out a higher number just because he's been yeah. in the big leagues and per start, you know, fine. You expect him to go five plus every time out, but I don't know if you necessarily want to pencil him in for 30 starts based on the track record that we've seen. Hmm. It's a great time of year, isn't it? Yeah. If this if were for a lockout, things would be just amazing right now. They're okay. Mm. Anyway, we're going to, we're going to make it through. We're going to find ways to keep things interesting throughout the upcoming month. I'm sure it means more draft and hold leagues. If you have questions about strategies for that format, for anything in general, again, keep the questions coming, even though I had to nuke the inbox and start over. 
we want to answer your questions. We I really saw do. a couple good ones that are that are in the new year, so we'll have to answer those. Yep, get those locked and loaded for our next episode. By the way, two episodes per week throughout January. We'll try to scale up the schedule once we get to February. All of that depends on lockouts and just need, a little, and just need a little hope. Just need something. Get to the table, please. Yeah, just at least for just for our sake, just table. pretend like you're negotiating. Right? <laughs> yeah. Get the tweets to come in like haven't met since December. Oh, that's like, the worst. Oh, come on! What are you guys <laughs> waiting for? Meantime, if you want to read about all that stuff or read the piece that Eno tees that comes out on Thursday, get a subscription to The Athletic, 33% off the first year at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. On Twitter, he's at Eno Saris. I'm at Derek McRiper. The pod is at rates and barrels. And if you've been watching us on YouTube, be sure to barrel up on the like button. Or if you haven't watched us on YouTube, go to our channel and just hit the subscribe button. We'd really appreciate it if you took a few moments to do that. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening.